All right, let me invite our kids to head back to be with our children's workers in Transformation Station. So if you're a kid and you're going to participate there today, feel free to head on back. And I'd like to invite the rest of us to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We'll be in Luke 22 today, starting in verse 1. And it's hard to believe that we are almost to the end of our series through the Gospel of Luke. Almost 40 sermons. We have four weeks left. John will cover the crucifixion the next two weeks. I will cover the resurrection uh, the two weeks after that. And uh, today we're going to look at uh, this, this uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. Now think about this. Millions of people around the world partake of the bread and the cup of communion every Sunday. And it's a privilege to be invited. Jesus invites all who follow him to come and sit at his table and participate in what he has done for us. And so just as a meal that you might host in your home, Marsha and I love to have people over and, and to get to know them and to spend quality time and, and intimate kind of fellowship together. Just as that's a privilege that, that has a lot of blessings attached to it. So every time when we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, we should understand that immense blessings and privileges are attached to our coming. So this morning, I want us to think about the table of Christ. And as we do so, as we jump into to Luke 22, I want us just to, to pause and consider, you know, do we really understand the depth of significance, the meaning that is packed into this practice that is observed in some churches every single week? I can tell you that from, from my study this week in Luke chapter 22, I am, I am growing to love this practice, this observance, and, and appreciating more and more and more the wisdom that Jesus displays in giving this to us. And so as we think about Christ's table this morning, it's my prayer that you will come to love it, to appreciate it, to practice it every single time, not as some kind of empty ritual that we do just because we're gathered on a Sunday, but as something that, that is, is, is life and blessing to us as we reflect on who Christ is and what he has done for us. Now, before we jump in to understand what the Lord's Supper is all about, first we have to see uh, Christ's rejection once again. So if you look in the first two verses of Luke chapter 22, we find uh, what we've seen all throughout the gospel, that there were the religious leaders of the day who wanted to take Jesus out. It says this, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So what we have here is the climax of Luke's gospel. We've reached the Passion Week of Christ, the week when he would go to the cross and be crucified on our behalf. 
And we know that the religious leaders have been trying all along to take him out. They haven't appreciated his teaching, nor have they appreciated his works. And so one group after another, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they've all taken their turn at trying to remove Jesus from his prominence and popularity and have sought to, to, to now, they're at the point of wanting to kill him. How are they going to get this done? This is the question that lingers as we read through the Gospel of Luke. But now in verse 3, we find a major twist in the story. Because what we're going to find is that this this, uh, handing over of Christ doesn't actually come from the outside, but it comes from within. Verse 3 says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot who was one of the number of the twelve, the twelve disciples. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And so consider this, one of of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to follow him, someone that, that he had poured his life into, who had heard his teaching, seen his miraculous works, experienced his deep and abiding love, someone from the inside, Judas, is going to betray Christ and hand him over to the authorities. You see, it's, it's one thing to be brought down from an enemy on the outside, but it's unthinkable to be betrayed by a friend on the inside. And yet this is exactly what happens to the innocent Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we see here in Luke, he's careful to point this out, is that even though Judas is responsible This is part of a larger cosmic battle that is going on. It says that Satan entered Judas. It says that that Satan had control at this point over his life, and and, and Judas submitted to uh, the work of of Satan here. And we saw as early as chapter 2 with the birth of Christ that Herod ordered that that all the firstborn in Israel uh, were to be killed. And so Satan has been working since chapter 2 with the birth of Christ to chapter 4 with the temptations of Christ all the way through to take Jesus out, and now it seems that he has finally leveled what will be the fatal blow to Christ. But here's what I love about the gospel and about Jesus, is that while there is the plan of destruction at work here in verses 1 through 6, there is actually two plans at work in Luke 22. While the religious leaders in Judas were working this plan of destruction, on the one hand, on the other hand, Jesus is continuing to work out his plan of redemption and salvation. And we see this picking up in verse 7. I want to read down through verse 20, if you'll follow along. It says says this, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And when he took the bread... And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after he had eaten, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. These were final moments that the disciples were going to spend with Jesus. And they are momentous moments for the disciples, and they are momentous for us as well. I want us to focus in on what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper. We use terms synonymously like communion or the Eucharist. And and these are all terms that carry different uh, weight and significance to help us understand what happens when we partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine together. So we will explain them as we go. Now, what does it mean to share in the Lord's Supper? I think the first thing we need to do is understand that the Lord's Supper depicts the drama of the gospel. The Lord's Supper depicts the drama of the gospel. You may have noticed in verse 15 that he said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, why is this? Why would Jesus say, I have earnestly desired this? Well, number one, it's because of the significance of the Passover. The Passover for a Jew, a pious Jew, was a time for them to look back to the birth of their nation. They were once enslaved under Pharaoh's rule in Egypt, oppressed and, and, and enslaved with, with just a, a very great difficulty uh, there in Egypt. But it says that God delivered them out of Egypt by sending 10 plagues on the Egyptians. One after the other, Pharaoh continued to rebel against God, harden his heart against God, and he would not let Israel go free. But it's then on the 10th plague, the plague of death, where Moses warns Pharaoh, hey, death is going to come to all of the firstborn in Israel. And God told his people, hey, sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorposts of your home and everyone's home whose mark was marked by blood, the blood of the lamb was passed over and their firstborn was spared. So all of the people of Israel dwelling in the land of Egypt, their firstborn was spared, whereas all of the firstborn in Egypt died. There was a great cry in the land. This was the the death knell for Pharaoh. He let God's people go. And from the Passover, they move into the Exodus 
finally and ultimately to the promised land. The Passover meal was a great time of celebration for Jews. It was a time to look back and say, this is what God has done. Look what God has done. He has delivered us. He has brought us out. He has given us so many blessings. But what we find in the New Testament is that the Passover and the subsequent Exodus were just a picture, a foretaste of a greater deliverance and redemption that was to come. Jesus was so eager to share in this meal because in his suffering, he would show that he is the true and better Passover lamb. Jesus is the true Passover lamb for us. You see, when we partake of of the bread and the wine, it symbolizes the sacrifice of Christ for us on the cross. Jesus is the Passover lamb. This is why John, in in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist would say when he saw Jesus for the first time, he would say, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to deal with our sin before a holy God so that everyone who looks to the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, can now have the judgment of God, the the death that we deserve, passed over just as the Israelites were spared in Egypt. This is the good news of the gospel. The, The bread and the wine, they portray what Christ has done for us, graphically portray this. If we read in Acts 2.42, the Lord's Supper is called the breaking of bread to to show that Christ's body was broken for us. And you may say, well, Tanner, Jesus' body wasn't broken in two. In fact, you biblical scholars would say, well, Jesus, not even a bone in his body was broken. How can he say, I'm broken for you? Well, let's not overthink this one, right? I mean, he was flogged. His skin was ripped off his back. Nails pierced through his hands and feet. Jesus was torn for us. And he shed his blood on our behalf. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. This is the essence of the gospel, substitutionary atonement. He lived the life that we should have lived in our place, died the death that we should have died in our place by taking on the judgment and wrath of God that everyone who looks to him can have life through him, both abundant life now and eternal life forever. And so I want to be very clear. When we celebrate, okay, celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church, it is for everyone who has decided to follow Christ with their life, confess Jesus as the Lord of their life. So you may be kind of new here at Redemption Hill, and you may not yet be a member of our church. That's okay. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've received his atoning work for you on the cross, then we invite you to partake with us today. And maybe some are here. Inevitably, every week we have some here who are new to Christianity, who are, who are not yet quite there, and say, yeah, Jesus is the Savior of my life, the Lord of my life. Then we simply invite you to, to weigh this out, to consider this as we partake later, to, to think about and pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. If this is truly uh, real, that salvation is truly found in Christ alone. 
And some people might say, well, well that sounds so exclusive. Why would he exclude anyone from, from, from uh, something that happens in church, the meal of Christ? And I would just say, why would someone who doesn't follow Christ want to partake of this meal and everything that it means and symbolizes, right? It's actually a, a loving thing to encourage people to consider where you are with God and, and to be patient if you're not quite there with Christ. So, so Jesus is the true Passover lamb, and Jesus, in his death, brings this new covenant to pass. You see, Jesus fulfills all of the promises that we find in the Old Testament, and he ushers in this new covenant, this new way of us being able to relate to God. And Jeremiah foretold this in Jeremiah 31, uh, starting in verse 31 to 34. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So Jesus says, my blood is poured out. It is the blood of the new covenant, signifying this new relationship that people can have with God through Christ, that, that now in Christ, our sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. If we look to him in the blood that he shed on the cross, then our, our sin, all of our sin, which is more than we can number, right? All of it is forgiven in Christ. And not only that, now God gives us his spirit and he writes his law on our heart so that now we have the capacity to keep his commands, to fulfill his commands, to live our lives for him, to glorify him with our life because he gives us the grace and the strength to do it. The Christian life, as we say almost every single week, is all of grace. And this is the new covenant that Jesus died to bring. So in order for us to partake of, of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, we need to understand that the, 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 the Lord's Supper is actually a drama of the gospel. It tells a story of what happens in the gospel for us. Number two, let's be motivated by the gospel when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Be motivated by the gospel. I love the uh, New Testament scholar, Jonathan Pennington. He, he said that the Lord's Supper is, is packed with so much potency, so much meaning, that, that it's like a, a, a hot uh, a iron that is beating us hot metal. What happens? It, the sparks fly up, right? And there are all kinds of sparks that come up when you take that hot iron and you smack it against metal. And he says that the communion is like this, that each spark that we're going to look at carries uh, a weight that can illuminate and invigorate our faith in Christ. And so again, I hope that as we look at this, as we study this, that, that you will grow to appreciate the Lord's Supper like you never have in your life before. 
So what, what happens when we come to the table? How does the gospel motivate our obedience? Well, we see the primary command Jesus gives in verse 19. It says, when he took bread and he gave thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, so we're motivated by the gospel because we partake of the, of the Lord's Supper so that we can remember the sacrifice of Christ. When Jesus says, this is my body, we understand him to be speaking symbolically or metaphorically, not literally. In other words, what happens here is that the bread and the cup, they point to a more significant reality, namely the sacrifice of Christ 2,000 years ago when his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Now, this is where our church and churches like ours would differ drastically from the Catholic Church's understanding of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, the view of the Lord's Supper, and, and this is that the, the physical elements of the bread and the wine actually are transformed at the level of their substance to the actual body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Transubstantiated into his body and blood. And you say, well, why are you talking about this? Well, um, in the Medford area, probably about 77% of the population to one degree or another would identify with the Catholic Church. So as, as a pastor of, of a Christian church in the Baptist tradition, people ask me this all the time. Hey, what are the differences between the Catholic Church and your church? And so this is a great opportunity for us to understand some of the differences. I mean, one question to ask when we think about is this a, a literal meaning or is this a, a metaphorical or symbolic meaning is just to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples when they're partaking of this meal with Jesus and to say, would they have thought for even a split second that when Jesus holds up this bread and this cup that he is, he is saying that, that they are physically being changed into his very body and blood? I think most of us would say, absolutely not. But even to back that up further, we, we would know that Jesus has said time and time again, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. And so they knew in, in each of those cases that Jesus was speaking symbolically, each time pointing to a greater reality of how he is the light for us. He is the door by which we enter access to God. He is the vine by which we stay connected to God and have spiritual life through him. So that's just one difference. And, and there are different views, even from Catholicism to, to our tradition. But I think what's more significant about the Mass that I really hope that everyone understands is, is that Christ is, is portrayed as sacrificed again and again and again on behalf of people. So this is what the Council of, of Trent declared. They said the Mass may be properly offered according to apostolic tradition for the sins, punishments, satisfaction, and other necessities of the faithful on earth, as well as for those who have died in Christ and are not yet wholly cleansed. The final part pointing to the doctrine of purgatory, which we would also not buy. Now, well, what's, what's the problem with this kind of view? Well, just trying to, to understand the Bible. Okay, we, we just, when we're here on Sundays, we just 
preach and teach from the Bible, and we go right through books, we really want to understand the Bible, you know, as God has given it to us, and we see time and time again, what's wrong with this? Well, the Bible would say, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So, so, so there's no, see, in the Bible, from beginning to end, no doctrine of purgatory, and, and, and oh, by the way, the sacrifice of Christ totally cleanses us in the first place, even if there were a purgatory, why would we need more help in seeking to be cleansed? Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient once and for all. But then beyond that, as we think about um, the, the sacrifice of Christ, Hebrews 7, 27, Jesus has no need like the high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. There's one sacrifice that is needed. Jesus paid the price once for all. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14. If that wasn't enough for you, how about these verses? And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And these words that Jesus spoke on the cross in John 19.30, it is finished. It means his work was done. He made full atonement for our sins so that we no longer have to, to see Christ sacrificed again and again and again in the Mass. Okay, I'm not here to hate on the Catholic Church today. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to teach what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper so that we can understand it rightly and we can partake of it and understand that, that this was sufficient for us. Christ died to bring us to God and what happened 2,000 years ago was sufficient for me today and it will be forever. So when we come to the table, we remember this once for all, perfectly sufficient sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of our sin that we might have life through him. And Jesus says, remember this. Do this in remembrance of me because if you're like me, you're prone to having maybe what we would call spiritual amnesia, right? We just kind of forget how great God is, how awesome he is, the, the sacrifice that he gave for us. And so we don't constantly go back to the gospel and say, Jesus, you died for me. You've given me life. You've given me your spirit. You've changed me. I can now live for you, empowered by your grace, day by day by day. We just, we lose sight of that. So Jesus says, partake of this again and again and again in remembrance of me and all that the gospel means for us. So why would we do this again and again and again, recalling his death again and again and again? It's because his love for us as displayed on the cross is what motivates our love back to him and our love for one another. And these are the two greatest commandments. So we remember the sacrifice of Christ. And then number two, we participate with Christ. So, so we wouldn't say that, that Christ is, is physically present in the bread and the, and the, 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 the wine or the juice, um, but we would say that, that Christ is present by his spirit. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, 
we are participating with him. We are communing with him. We are showing that we have identified ourselves with Christ, that we are one with him. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So just as we receive Christ by faith in him initially and we enter the Christian life, so each and every day we feed on his word and we have our minds renewed by faith, receiving his truth. And when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we renew our covenant commitment to him and we experience the blessings that flow from his sacrifice for us. So, so just as the, the covenant with Israel, the Mosaic covenant at Sinai, the, the Passover uh, launched them into, celebrated God's uh, covenant relationship with his people, Israel, as a nation, so the new covenant pictures forth the relationship that God has with his people, the church which tells us that, that we not only participate with Christ in communion, but we also participate with one another. You see, to participate with Christ is to necessarily participate with Christ's people. This is a, a family meal. We partake of this together. Jesus did not just save me when I trusted in him and his work on the cross, but he saved a people, more people that when we come together now, we celebrate together all that Christ has done. And this is why we, we never in the New Testament see the, the Lord's Supper being practiced in isolation or outside the context of a local church, which means when I get up in the morning to read my Bible, I don't have a cup and a piece of bread and partake of the Lord's Supper by myself, nor do we do this even in our, our, our small groups, our community groups at Redemption Hill. We wait, as seems to be the pattern of the New Testament, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 11, when the church comes together, we partake because we're all in this thing together as a family receiving the benefits of the salvation of Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 10, 17 helps us with this. It says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this is another spark, another, another benefit for us. When we partake of this, it is strengthening not only our communion and participation with Christ, but it's also strengthening and, 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 and enhancing our relationships with one another. It is deepening our bonds. This is why I think one of the reasons why Luke places this conversation about who is the greatest in verses 24 through 27, if we read those verses, we would see that the disciples started disputing after they find out that Judas is going to betray Jesus. They start saying, well, who is the greatest one among us. And Jesus says, if you're talking about who is the greatest one among us, you, do, you don't even really understand who I am. Because I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the ultimate servant. And he says, everyone who follows me needs to serve others in the ways that I have served and loved you. And so we are, we are, when we come around the table of Christ and we partake of this meal together, we are strengthening our love and care and service to one another. A failure to count others more significant than ourselves is a failure to grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
which leads us to a fourth motivator for this. As we are motivated by the gospel, when we partake of the gospel, we actually have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, so the two ordinances of, of our church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as we've said, they are each a drama of the gospel. They retell the story of what Christ has done for us. When we, when we take the Bible and we preach the gospel, we are, we are proclaiming it to the ear. But when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are actually proclaiming the gospel to the eye. We are, we are seeing represented symbolically what Christ has done for us. And this, once again, strengthens our faith. So when someone says, well, why did you get baptized? Well, it's because I was a follower of Christ, right? And why do you partake of the, the Lord's Supper regularly at your church? Here's a very simple answer that you can give people that's ultra gospel centered okay because of who jesus is and what he has done and what he has asked me to do is that, is that good enough for you why why do we partake of the lord's supper because of who jesus is what he has done and what he has asked me to do i mean i am fired up in a little bit to partake of the lord's supper because of who jesus is what he's done and what he has asked me to do and so in a little while, when we walk down this aisle, what is filling my heart is that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And he died for me. He was risen for me. He is coming back again for me and for all of you who have faith in Christ. So for you physicists out there, this reality... It changes us down to the very yuktagram of our lives. Dave, you with me over there, physicist Dave? That's the smallest unit of measurement on the planet, down to the very proton. It's a septillion of a gram, okay? I only have physics in high school, but I looked it up on Google last night, okay? So there you go. But this is how deeply the gospel changes us. I mean, it changes everything about us. So we proclaim the gospel when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And we do this so that by all means, point number three, we might partake of the Lord's Supper in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you say, well, how do you do that? How can we partake uh, in the right kind of spirit? Let me give you four ways, okay? Number one, we should partake with humility. In light of the sacrifice of Christ, it, this is so undeserved for us. We did not deserve for the perfect Son of God to, to die in our place. So it, so it should provoke a great humility and sobriety in our hearts when we consider that He took our place in our place condemned he stood. As the hymn says, hallelujah, what a savior. So, so this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he, he instructs those Corinthian believers to partake in a, in a manner worthy of Christ. 
He says, because to do so is actually to incur judgment on yourself. So he says, when you come together, some of you are, are, are like being, you know, uh, greedy and gluttonous, and, and some of you are getting drunk, and, and some of you, you should eat at home, because when you come to the Lord's Supper, it, it's about partaking together, not about getting your fill. And so he says, examine yourselves to make sure that you partake in a worthy manner. So, so when we partake a little bit later today, what I'm going to invite you to do is, is to look into the mirror of your life and to say, God, where do, where do I need your grace? Where do I need to change? What do I have to confess to you? Because we all, there's not a time we come into worship that we don't have something going on in our life that needs some refinement. So we come to God, we examine ourselves, we confess our sin to him, we experience his forgiveness, and then we can partake in a worthy manner. There may be sometimes, I'll just say this, there may be sometimes that, that you are so out of step with God and that you have some kind of friction with someone else in the church, that it would be better for you just to hold off that particular Sunday and not partake in an unworthy manner. But to be patient, to get those things right with God and right with your, your neighbor, and then come and participate with, with, with heart that's been purified and hands that have been cleansed before God. So the frequent participation in the Lord's Supper should serve as a great catalyst for personal holiness in our life as we come with humility, not partaking in an unworthy manner. But we should not only come with humility, we should also be filled with gratitude, okay? This is where the, the Greek word eucharisteo comes from, our word eucharist. Okay, when Jesus says here in verse 19 that he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. The word for given thanks is, is where we get our word Eucharist from. So we not only come with humility, but we also, in like manner, just as Jesus gave thanks, so we also give thanks to God for all he has done for us in Christ. And again, how could we look at the cross of Christ and not have our hearts filled with gratitude over what he has done for us? How could we stand here before the cross and not be moved, not be changed, to be grateful and thankful and express that in our hearts to God, in our thoughts, in our prayers? Jesus, thank you for dying for me that I might have life. Which means we should also partake with great delight. So the gospel not only changes us comprehensively, but part of that comprehensive change is that he gives us new affections for God. So the Christian life is not just a set of rules that we are to keep, okay? Do we, do we all understand that here, okay? A lot of people view Christianity as this kind of set of rules that is just a, a pattern of life and nothing more. And, and Jesus, I mean, it's certainly a way of life and we are to keep certain expectations and commands that God has laid down for us. But in every single case, there is joy found there. There is more joy in following Christ than in any other pursuit in life. So Jesus at the end of, of, of the Gospel of John says, these things I have spoken to you that, you're, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God wants us to have abundant joy. We should have great delight as we think about what God has done for us and the privilege of living our lives for him. 
So what does this mean for us? I mean, to, to put in very practical terms, when we partake of the Lord's Supper in just a little bit, we should come with humility and sobriety, knowing that this was a great sacrifice on our behalf, but it's okay to also come with a smile on your face and joy in your heart to know that Jesus is the greatest treasure of our lives. And he fills our life with great joy and delight in him. And so let me just ask you, do you love the gospel? When you partake of communion, do, do, you, do you have a sense of celebration and excitement and joy over the change that Jesus has, is making in your life? I have to, to admit, the churches that I grew up in, the, the, the tradition in most of those churches was to only partake of communion quarterly, which means four times a year we would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm just kind of growing to the place, okay, not to critique the past, and man, I'm so thankful for the church I grew up in, but I, just, I would have to say that's not enough. Four times in a year, I don't think that's enough. I mean, we're even praying about the frequency with which we partake at Redemption Hill. It's, it's more than once a month if you calendar it out, but we're even praying about maybe we should bump it up because of the privilege of all that it means for us, that we can partake with humility, gratitude, delight, and finally, with also great hope. Jesus mentions the kingdom of God four times in this passage, twice here as he institutes the mill, and then twice more in verses uh, 29 and 30. And so what this teaches us is there is a forward-looking dynamic to Christ's death that tells us there is ultimate triumph and victory in him. So one day Jesus will return and he will usher in this new kingdom of God by which we are participants by his grace and we experience the victory that he has won for us. Jesus tells us there is a meal to come. Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will sit down and dine with Christ in the kingdom of God. So every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are saying that the gospel has what Paul Tripp calls the then, now, then effect of the gospel. You got that? Are you with me? The then, now, then effect. Jesus died for my sins. And I'm the recipient of all that grace that forgives my sin in the past, empowers my life for the, for the present, the now, then, now, and then, 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 he's coming back to return. And we will partake of all of the restoration and blessings that come when he comes back. So we should also be infused with hope when we come to the Lord's Supper. So let me review what this meal means for us, okay? And this, this isn't even comprehensive, but, but hopefully it's helpful, okay? In partaking of the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ's death. We proclaim the gospel. We share in our fellowship with Christ and in our fellowship with one another. We have our faith strengthened. We are move to pursue holiness. We have an opportunity to express gratitude to God and we joyfully anticipate his return. So how do we respond to these words this morning? It's quite simple. Come to Christ's table with the fullness of the gospel in your heart. 
come to Christ's table with the fullness of the gospel in your heart. And so what I want to invite you to do today is come to Christ and come to his table and remember all that he and his sacrifice means for you. Let me lead us in a time of prayer. If you'll bow your head and close your eyes. I just want to invite you to spend a moment just in, in silence and solitude before God. And, and, and maybe you need to first just come with humility and say, man, in light of God, in light of your great sacrifice for us, you know, I'm so thankful and, and I want to confess my sin to you and, and be cleansed and, and come in a, in a worthy manner. And so our ushers are going to come forward and, and Seth is going to play. And it's as you pray and you express your, 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 your gratitude to God and your delight in the gospel and, and all that Jesus means for you. And just a, a moment after I pray, whenever the, the Lord leads you, if, if you're a follower of Christ today and you've received his atoning work on the cross, you've followed him with your life, then we want to invite you to come. And if, if you are here and you're exploring Christianity and you, you would say, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm in with Christ, then we just want to invite you to receive Christ today, to receive his sacrifice for you, that he died in your place, that he might bring you into a right relationship with God. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us and means for us. And Lord, we pray that we would fall more deeply in love with you, that we would be more appreciative of the sacrifice of Christ, that as we come and partake of this bread that represents your, your son's body broken for us and, and, and this, this, this cup that represents his blood poured out for us, that we would be changed, that you would meet us here and that you would, you would uh, renew us in our love for you and our love for one another. So God, only you know our hearts, only you know where we are before you. But Lord, we pray that your spirit will work and speak to us and, 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 and bring us closer and closer to you through the sacrifice of Christ. Lord, thank you for this privilege. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.